Mountain. It's good to see everybody. I'm glad you're here. It's going to be a great, uh, it's going to be a great day. And uh, it's just good to see everybody at, gearing up, kind of, uh, you know, stopping by, probably on the way to church to pick up some toilet paper and things. For <laughs> Here we go again. I love it. You got to love it, don't you? Uh, bring it on. Um, yeah, so, you know, the Olympics are over, and I really, I really love the Olympics, but this year, you know, everyone's kind of down on them, like they were a big dud or something. Americans didn't win as many medals, and nobody really likes the obscure winter sports. But, you know, I'll tell you, uh, I saw, when I was flipping channels, um, a new Olympic sport that I'd never even seen before, and I, as soon as I saw it, I thought, now that's something I could get excited about. Maybe you saw it, too. Go ahead and watch the screen here. It's cat curling. <laughs> I just met with the American men's team sitting in the stands. Pete Fenson said that they just wanted to be here to support the girls. They know that this is a crucial game. And you'll be impressed. You know, the guys were even participating with all the chants. And the United States has got a little bit of a dilemma here because there is a double opportunity for the Danish team on the left-hand side on the two American rocks. Beautiful shot. Beautiful shot. Wow. Now that's something we can all excited about. We can all love the Olympics again. <laughs> all right. So sorry about that. Send me letters. I don't care. Uh, whatever. Uh, hey, if you're just joining us, you know, this is a great time for you to be coming into Mountain because we've been going through this book called The Story, which collects most of the uh, great stories of the Bible and puts them all in a chronological order. And we're right up to that part now where we're coming to the end of the Old Testament today. And so we're at a perfect juncture, or if you've fallen behind in your reading or whatever, that's, you know, just jump back on the wagon and... Uh, You've got time to do that. We're taking a little breather, and then we're going to jump into the, to the next part of the story. You've done great so far, everyone. But um, I thought maybe this would be a perfect juncture for us to do a little bit of a recap, a review for a couple minutes about everything that's happened so far. Because the story, what's great about it, is that it reminds us that the Bible just isn't this sort of random collection of various stories or, you know, moral sayings or something like that, but rather... It is one continuous story through time of what God is really doing to bring us back to himself. And so let's take some time to rewind and recap the Old Testament. Again, I ask you uh, to watch the screen. In the beginning, God created the universe and a planet called Earth. Humans were formed in God's image to continue God's work. But soon, humans decided we want to live our way, not God's. Selfishness and violence filled the world. So God started over with just one family. And God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. The land around you is now yours. Your family will be my blessing to the entire world. In just a few generations, they grew into a large nation named Israel. The Egyptians became fearful and forced the Israelites to be their slaves. Through a humble leader named Moses, God led the Israelites in a great exodus back toward their promised land. Along the journey, God gave laws and commands to help the Israelites follow God's ways. Finally, after 40 years of struggle and complaining in the desert, the Israelites arrived back home in the promised land. In victory, the people worshipped God, but soon after, they turned from God and lived their own rebellious ways. This became a pattern from generation to generation. 
Israel's greatest judge was Samuel. He followed God's ways and spoke for God as a prophet. He told Israel that God was the only king they ever needed. But they desired to be like the corrupt nations surrounding them and insisted, we want a human king who we can see to rule over us just like the other nations. So Samuel found a man named Saul to be Israel's first king. His reign began well, but before long, Saul stopped following God's ways and made many bad decisions. So Samuel told Saul, because you have turned your back on God, God has rejected you as a king. Samuel's search for the next king led to a courageous young shepherd boy named David. When David grew up to be king, God blessed him and the Israelites greatly. But David was not perfect. He had an affair with a married woman and committed a murder to cover it up. But deep inside, David always loved God and would return to living in God's ways. Known as the poet warrior, he wrote music to God called Psalms, heartfelt expressions of prayer, struggle, and thankfulness. After many years as king, David gave the throne to his son Solomon. God also told David, one day, one of your descendants will rule with a kingdom that will never end. Solomon succeeded his father David, becoming the richest king in Israel's history. Full of God's wisdom, Solomon wrote books like Proverbs and built a magnificent temple, a permanent tabernacle reminding people of God's continual presence. But Solomon strayed from God, marrying corrupt wives who led him into worshiping false gods. Civil war broke out, dividing the country into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Soon, both of these kingdoms were led by corrupt kings who ignored God's ways. During this time, prophets were sent as messengers, calling the Israelites to return to God. They warned of the destructive consequences ahead. The prophet Elijah, a wild and rugged man, showed up false prophets by calling on God to give an awesome display of fire. The prophet Elisha followed him, bringing a boy back to life by causing him to sneeze. These prophets challenged the Israelites and their kings to return to God's better ways. But the Israelites would not listen. Distracted in their own rebellion, other nations swept in and conquered both of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. God's people were forced out of the promised land and many were taken away to be slaves once again. The temple was destroyed and the people lost everything. This was a time called the Exile, where many of the Israelites, now called Jews, were scattered across different lands. One prophet named Daniel was sent to a city named Babylon. The law demanded that everyone pray only to the king of Babylon, but Daniel refused and prayed to God three times a day. So Daniel was thrown into a pit of hungry lions. But God closed the mouths of the lions and Daniel emerged the next morning without a scratch. Though scattered, God was still watching over the Jewish people, and God gave them hope, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah's words, I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, returning them to the promised land and filling their hearts and minds with my ways. Sixty years later, this hope was realized. The Persian Empire freed the Jewish people to return to their promised land. A small number gathered back in the capital city of Jerusalem and a new smaller temple was built under the leadership of Ezra. Reunited, they celebrated and shouted with joy. 
but the elders wept in remembrance of what was lost. Prophets like Malachi and Isaiah pointed to the future and a coming king, a Messiah, one who would fully restore Israel and bring a new kingdom of peace. So the Jewish people waited and hoped, and God would not speak through the prophets again for 400 years. Okay, so that's quite a rewind, isn't it? And a pretty good recap. Congratulations, you've made it this far. We want to uh, turn now this week to chapter 21, which really is kind of marking the end of that Old Testament section of Scripture. And I love this passage of Scripture. It's really coming out of most where we're going to focus today is the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And I love this section. I, I, I just think it's so important because it invites every one of us to kind of look in the mirror and ask, you know, what, what's my calling? Why am I here? Why, why, what, what, it, it forces us to grapple with this question of what, what is God calling me to be about in this season of my life? Where, where is it that I'm supposed to make a dent in this world? To, to wrestle with that question. What's my impact meant to be? As I think about my story and weaving it into God's story, what's that supposed to look like? What's my purpose? Am I a leader? And if so, where am I supposed to be leading? I think it's so important. I know some of, some of you are, you know, you're, you're in middle school and you're trying to figure out what classes you're going to sign up for, what electives you take, or whether, whether you're in college and you're trying to figure out what major. These, this is a relevant question for us. Or maybe you're trying to figure out what job you're going to land, or if you're in a job and your occupation, you're sensing that, well, I know that's the right occupation, but I feel like there's something more in addition to my occupation. Or maybe it's time for you in mid-career to switch because it's tied to this, I, this bigger idea of what you're called to. Or maybe you're in a retirement period of your life and you've got opportunity now to rethink some things. The question all of us want to know the answer to is, what am I supposed to be doing? Where do I make my impact? And the fact is, God has placed you at this strategic crossroad in history and we need to figure out why and what you're here to do. And that, that's what we want to spend some time listening to Nehemiah about this week. Because I think we can learn a lot from a guy like Nehemiah. Now, the world is in desperate need of leaders. Everybody agree? Boy, the world needs leaders. You look everywhere you look, we need leadership. Politics, we need leaders. In, in our fi in financial realm, we need leaders. In education, in our homes, all over, we need leadership. And I don't just mean big names, you know, big time, big shot leaders famous people with big titles and positions. I, I get that sometimes leaders do have titles and positions. I get that. But what I'm, what I'm talking about is this, that leaders are people, leaders are people who get things done. Leaders are people who, who out of a core that God has developed inside of them, they see something outside of them and they apply this to that and it makes a difference. That's a leader. A leader is someone who sees a need and who steps up. Who doesn't say, well, it's not my problem, or I can't, or, you know, it's too big, or I don't know how, or, or, or something like that. It's not my job. Instead of making excuses, 
a leader recognizes there's something about the world that isn't right and says, this isn't right, and someone needs to do something about that. It may as well be me. That's a leader. And they step up into that gap, and they offer themselves, and they use their influence. Leaders use their influence. However small or great, whatever you have at your disposal in any given situation, you use it in order to bring change. That's leaders. Change. You might change something like you do. You might just change a conversation, the way it goes. You might change the tone of the bus ride or, or the locker room or the huddle. You might change the whole office or the way the home or the dinner table functions. You, you might change a whole neighborhood. You might eventually change a community. Change the world is what we're called to do. It's, it's, it's about bringing into the gap that's there that we recognize ourselves. Maybe you recognize that your influence is great, like Martin Luther King Jr., who stepped into a big gap as we celebrated last month and made a big difference in this country. Or maybe it's something you recognize as smaller at the moment, like the, the way the ladies are talking on the sideline at the soccer game. Someone needs to step into that gap and, 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 and address some things there, whatever it might be for you. Maybe it's your, you recognize your children by the way they're acting. Something's off course. Your family's maybe at stake in somehow, or your marriage, or, or some, some part of your school, or your neighborhood. But leaders are people who believe the world needs to change. And I'll love you in on something here. God's not really looking for leaders. He's looking for servants. He's looking for servants who basically say, God, I see something and it's not right. And I, I, I'm a person of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. But God, if you'll have me, here I am. Put me into that gap and, and I'll be happy to do whatever you want me to do. That's a leader. And that's, that's what all of us are called to do and to be. See, the problem we don't, we, have, we don't get around to that very often because a lot of times we just think about me. We think it's all about me and everything revolving around me. And if you think the world revolves around you and that your story is primarily supposed to be about you and the stuff only you cares about, you're going to have a very unexciting story, a very forgettable episode that will vanish into the, into the annals of time. But if you want your story to be part of his story, now you're talking about something that's interesting. And so as you begin to say, what do I care about more than just me? You begin to see the world that has these gaps and you step into them. Now you're talking about a story that only God could tell. And that's when your story becomes part of his story and God's hoping that happens to every single one of us. Friends, that's what a leader does. That's what a leader does. And you're called to be that person. To say, God cares about that. And you know what I do too? I'm feeling it right here. And I don't know what to do. You may not know what to do or how to do it or who's with me, but by golly, here I am, Lord. If you can use me, here I am. God's calling you to be that person. So let's look at Nehemiah because we can learn some things from this guy. By the way, I, he might have been one of the shortest uh, people in the Bible. Did you know that? Yeah, Nehemiah. <laughs> There's another guy named Bill Dad, the shoe height. He was apparently pretty short. Anyway, okay, um, never mind, focus. Here we go. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2. This is a time, before we jump in there, this is a time now, Nehemiah, remember we've had all these people that get deported into exile, and then the, uh, the king says uh, from Babylon, you can go back home, and the first wave goes back home, and they rebuild the temple. And then later a second group goes back over there with Ezra, and now Nehemiah's over here in, in Persia, and he's worked up through the ranks, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, one of the people of God, but he's worked up through the ranks, and he's what they call the cupbearer to the king. The king's name is Artaxerxes, everybody give me an Artaxerxes. 
Artaxerxes, right. Remember last week we talked about his son, Xerxes, who was married to someone, do you remember the woman last week? Esther, right? So this is Artaxerxes' son, Xerxes. Excuse me, Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes. Wow, whatever. Okay, so um, <laughs> Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king, which is a strange-sounding thing, but it's a pretty high, elevated position. It may sound like a cush job to you, but here's what it meant. If you wanted to knock off the king in those days, which happened with some frequency, one of the chief ways you might try to go about doing it would be by poisoning him in his food. And so he had a cupbearer who literally carried and protected the cup of the king that he ate out of. And so that meant when it's mealtime, king's sitting down getting ready to eat, and before he eats, he shoves it over to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah starts eating. If he's like, mm, good, mm, Nehemiah's like, I mean, the king's like, great. But if, if, if Nehemiah takes a few bites and then, and then dies, the king's suddenly like, I'm not feeling very hungry. So that's, that's what Nehemiah's job was. And, uh, and he's sort of got a high position there, cupbearer to the king. And now he's getting ready to welcome one of his brothers back who had visited over there in Jerusalem. He's going to come back and give him a report. And his brother's name is Hanani. And by the way, I wouldn't name my son Hanani if I were you. No offense if that's your name, but I'm telling you, nanny, nanny, nanny. You can just see how that's not going to go well on the playground. Hanani, want a banana, Hanani. It was a bad name, but never mind. Focus. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Hey, Hanani, tell me, how are things back in the holy city? I hear they finished the temple. It's awesome, I bet. What's going on? Give me a good report. Well, he doesn't get a good report. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And he gets this terrible report, a picture of Jerusalem and its walls in shambles, a dilapidated mess. And Jerusalem, of course, was near and dear to everyone's heart because it represented the epicenter of what God was doing on the planet. If Jerusalem was in shambles, then God's mission on the earth was in shambles. God's glory and reputation was at risk. And so the picture is kind of ugly that he gets. But that's really the first step toward any of us. Seizing the calling we're meant to have is what I would just say, we've got to embrace reality. You've got to look at the way things actually are and let it sink in that something's not right somewhere. Embrace reality. Take a look at the real world. Even if it means getting thrust out of our comfort little cocoon. You know, look at reality and, and know that there's some pain and mess that we maybe would prefer not to look at, but that's what Nehemiah did, and he's pretty rocked, I bet, out of his little comfortable cupbearer existence there in his posh palace. But you know what? He looked at him, he looked at it, and it wrecked him a little bit. The wall was broken, and so he, he says, says, man, that's a mess. You know, the world's in need of dire leadership because of that. Todd Hall, one of our pastors here, says it this way, why do we need leaders? He says, we need leaders because there are problems in the world. That's why we need leaders. If we never admit there's a problem, then we can just kind of go about our merry little you know, cupbearer existent posh life and just pretend there's no issues. But friends, there are issues, so embrace reality, and then we need to, we need to just, as leaders, step up because stuff's broken. Let me ask you a, a series of questions today that God can use to prompt your heart as you think about what He's leading you to in this next season of your life. Here's one question I'd ask you today. You know, what's broken in this whole world that bothers you? What's broken that bothers you?
Embrace reality. Look at the, you know, what, what brokenness kind of draws your eye, it stirs your heart. You know, a lot of times how I've seen this work in a lot of people is it might have something to do with a brokenness that you have some personal experience with, something that you've maybe been healed of or are working through or God's brought some grace in your life. A kid who grows up in a divorced home knows firsthand that pain and maybe has a special affinity with others who are experiencing that, for example, of a thousand examples we could give. And one of the keys to figuring this out for each of us comes down to this. Where the world's need intersects with your heart, that intersection forms a hook that God intends to plant in your heart to draw you into a gap that He wants you to fill. Let me say it again. Where the world's need and your heart and passion intersect, that forms a hook that God wants to plant in your heart to use to draw you into a gap that He's hoping you'll fill. Do you know where that is? What's that pile of rubble that bothers you? Listen for that area inside of you that wants to, to rise up and cry out, this is not right. You see the way things are. You embrace reality, but you look and say, that's the way it's supposed to be. And into that gap, leaders are people who step in with whatever influence they have at their disposal. Carla's sister, uh, Valerie, and her husband, David, are dear to us. They, they live in Iowa. He's a pastor there. And um, they, they've had the world's need and their heart intersect at a point where they recognize Jesus cares tremendously about the least of these children, especially all over the world. And... Uh, especially orphans who are languishing without love and care. It's close to God's heart, close to their heart. And so they've stepped in. Bam, they found something that they're supposed to lead out in. And so we're praying for them. And next week, God willing, I invite you to pray with us, God willing, next week they'll get on a plane and they'll go to China because they've been planning and preparing and raising funds for years. But they're going to go get Addie, that little girl from China that's going to come home and live with them, be part of their family, I hope. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, when you look at David and Valerie, they're just ordinary folk like us. But they're leaders. They're leaders and they're, they're living a kind of life and a kind of story that every person longs to live. Where, yeah, it was hard, but we're right in the middle of what I know I'm supposed to be doing. That's what you want. It's what God wants for you. So let me ask, what's broken in this whole world that bothers you? That crossroads is your destiny. Nehemiah, verse 4 here in chapter 1, is one of the most poignant parts of the whole story. Listen to this. So he, he, the guys come back. Hey, tell me the report. Well, it's not good. The walls are in shambles. Look at the next verse, what Nehemiah does. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Can you see him? Shoulders heaving, tear down the cheek, hand over the face, weeping. For some days, he says, I mourned and fasted. This wasn't a passing emotional thing. It stuck with him. And then I prayed before the God of heaven. Then he went and talked to God about it. Talked to God about it. When he hears that things are in a shambles in Jerusalem, 
the pile of rubble that he pictures in his mind hits him like a ton of bricks and he just starts to cry. I think it's possible that Nehemiah already knew that the walls were down. I mean, they've been down for some time. But it's like for whatever reasons going on in his life right at that point, it hits him hard that time. Maybe that's like that for you sometimes. Something where you've, already, you've kind of known it was there. But for whatever reason, it's alive now in you and it's hitting you hard. And maybe, this, maybe it's what you need to do something about. That happened to me with, um, with Hurricane Sandy. You know, we heard about it, saw it on the news. You kind of get it, it's bad. But when we got in the van, we took 50 trips up there from Mountain. And I was on one of the first ones. I think it might have been the first one. Yeah, just to go up and help. But I tell you what, we went up there. We did the first one. When you get off that, when you get out there and you're looking around, you see a picture like this, and you're standing in someone's front, what used to be their house, and they're describing what they lost and what's going on, and they can't even form sentences. It changes everything about how you feel, even though you kind of knew it was there before. And I think maybe that happened for Nehemiah. He knew the walls were bad, but when he heard the picture and he saw it, it just, it did something to him. And I think God wants that to happen. Finally, Nehemiah's heart was breaking for something that God's heart was breaking for, and God wants that to happen in you and me. Chapter 2, verse 3, verse 2, excuse me. So he's going around carrying the cup, doing his job, but he's all sad in the face, and the king sees it. And the king asks him, why does your face look so sad? You're not sick, are you? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. In other words, I can tell this is a big deal to you. What's going on? And of course, he's very much afraid. He doesn't want to talk to the king about this because if he says anything, it doesn't sound like I love Persia. He's gonna, you know, he could get, lose his job or be killed. But he just says, he just embraces reality. He tells it how it is. He says, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Because it was such a big deal to Nehemiah. He knew what all this represented. God, his reputation, his purposes, the mission. No city, a city is only as strong as its walls. See? As the, as the walls go, the city goes. And he knows that there's no future for Jerusalem and no future for the mission of God. And when he looks at it, he says, that's not right. And he says it how it is. What breaks the heart of God that's also breaking your heart? Don't rush over that question. Don't rush past it. What's breaking the heart of God right now? It's also breaking your heart. When God brings that to mind, let it be the hook that plants in your heart and draws you into the gap He means you to fill. You know, near the end of Jesus' ministry, He's at the peak of His popularity. And he comes into Jerusalem finally. He's been out in Galilee. He comes finally into Jerusalem, knows that that's where he needs to go next. It's what in the Bible we refer to as the triumphal entry. You can read about it in Luke chapter 19. I went and saw the movie Son of God last night. Beautiful, beautiful portrayal of Jesus. And I highly recommend you get your friends who don't know Jesus to it. And, uh, but but I'll, I'll tell you, they pictured this scene really well. And everyone's cheering and you know they're like celebrating. Jesus is awesome. He's healed all these people. He's done all this great teaching. And they're like, oh, Jesus, you're awesome. You rock. You're the Messiah. Hallelujah praise the Lord son of God you know everyone's like and the Pharisees are like shush up pipe the people down and Jesus is like no man if you if these people aren't cheering you know the rocks themselves will cry out and praise me so it's a big high time it's a very happy moment but then very suddenly in about verse 41 Jesus has a very abrupt change of countenance it's like he comes over a riser and he stops and he looks down into the valley where he can see the whole city of Jerusalem spread out before him 
And all of a sudden, as he looks at it, he stops, his face falls, and he begins to weep. What makes you cry? Do you think you ever cry about the same things that God cries about? Why was Jesus crying? As he's looking down at the city, everything looking like it's just fine, all the buildings looking there in place, people running to jobs, doing their stuff. Somehow he sees the people and his heart breaks. His heart breaks for what's going on there and he sees where they are embracing reality, but he sees where God would have them be and he sees that gap and it breaks his heart and it, it makes him want to just cry. You know, in the 12th century, some folks found a location on a hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus might have come through. They said this is maybe the spot where he stopped and cried. And they built a church there in 1891. It's still there. Here's a picture of it. I've been there. It's called Dominus Flevit, which means, you know, the crying of the Lord or, or the Lord wept. And the shape of the building is meant to be in the shape of a tear. You can kind of imagine that as you look at it. And inside, if you go inside, you can look out through a window and it overlooks the whole city. Here's what you see. And people think maybe that's exactly what Jesus might have seen. You know, that, that picture, that view. And looking down at the, at the needs of the people and the hurts and the losses, even though he was having this big old moment, immediately then he, he just begins to weep. And as you look at that situation, you realize that Jesus dried his tears and he walked down that hill and he walked right through those gates, right through the city wall into the city of Jerusalem to do what God sent him to do. And then he was ushered back out to the city walls a few days later with a cross on his back. And he went to the cross and he died. And then that is the Jesus who says to you and me, follow me. Take up your own cross. I've got a job for you to do in the greatest mission of love in the world. Will you do it? When you take up your cross and you realize that it's so much bigger than you, whatever the cost, I'll carry my cross, I'll go and step into the gap like Jesus went into the gap of that Jerusalem wall and came back out. When you do that, you realize your life is about so much more than just the things that we think are all about me. So where is your Jerusalem? The wall that you're supposed to stand in the gap with. You know, maybe for some of us, maybe for all of us, part of the rubble pile that we know is not right the way it's supposed to be, the rubble pile that's supposed to be rebuilt, has to do with people who are far from God. Because as Jesus looked down in Jerusalem, don't you imagine that's part of the reason he's crying? As he's looking at these people that are there in the holy city, but some of them so far from God? And maybe your heart would be willing to be broken a little bit because that breaks God's heart when His people are far from Him. Some of us live in Hartford County. David T. Olson says that 13.4% of Hartford County are involved in a church on any given weekend. And who knows how many are in a church that are still far from God. 13%. We have about 244,000 people in this county. You know, there's a whole lot, a lot of people that are really, really far from God, my friends. We live in the Northeast, which is one of the most unchurched parts of the whole country. We live in Maryland, which is one of the unchurched parts of the Northeast. We live in Hartford County, which is the statistically most unchurched county in the state of Maryland. 
There's lots and lots of people here. Recent studies have shown 61% of Hartford County residents say, I have no affiliation whatsoever. 61%. Maybe you know one of them. Maybe you would allow your heart to be a little bit broken for the things that break the heart of God. The Jesus who died on the cross for that person maybe would love to see his people stand in that gap and say, Lord, is there a way that you can use me? You don't have to get on a plane. You don't have to do anything. You just got to go to Jerusalem. Your Jerusalem is your neighborhood. It's your bar. It's your, it's your gym. It's your office. It's your, it's your school. It's your home. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Can I get a witness, he says. Can I get a witness? Can I get someone who will stand up and say something? Can I get someone who will live a certain way? Can I get you to stand in the gap? You'll be my witnesses. I need a witness. Who will do it, he says. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. I need you to walk through that gate, that gap in the wall. I need you to get in there and do something for me. And then in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. But it starts right here. So maybe one of the 195 million people in this country who have nothing to do with Jesus and no church affiliation, maybe one of them is a name that you would allow to kind of burden you in the same way it's burdening God. Maybe it has to do with just needs that people have of a hurting kind. I love that we're a triumphal entry church. You know, in a way we are. We, we, we get to celebrate all these big wins around here. It's like a triumphal entry. It's like, isn't God awesome? Hallelujah. You know, we, we get 5,000 people on a weekend. Man, that's some, that's some serious palm branches going on, right? We, we had 640 baptisms last year. We got all these mission trips people are taking. We sponsor all these kids, you know? We got all 2,000, 2,200 people in a small group studying the Word of God. There's lots to say, thank you, God, way to go. But what I love about Mountain is at the same time, every single person matters. And you know what? Jesus reminds us that you can weep over just one. And every person walking in the door, the people sitting next to you at every one of our campuses listening online, guess what? They've got a burden in their hurt. And Jesus has tears for that. And maybe you can too. Maybe you can care about someone who's right around you. And that's where you know the world's need and your heart are intersecting to hook you into that gap I don't know what your call is meant to be but I know it's going to have something to do with where that hook is let's go back to Nehemiah the question Nehemiah wanted to hear came next from the king he pours out his heart it's kind of a risk because the king might say, ah, get me a new king bear, kill this guy, uh, a cup bear. I don't, I don't want to have, have this kind of down in the mouth here. But the king says to him in, in verse 4, the king says, what is it you want, Nehemiah? Hey, friends, be ready if God asks you that question. Do you know the answer to that question? If God says to you, what do you want? And here's the question, into what gap do you really feel you're called to step? What do you want to see changed? What, do you, what makes your heart beat faster when you think about what could be? Where is that holy discontent that rises up inside of you? Where do you want to stand in the gap? So in other words, we don't just need to embrace reality. We've got to engage. We've got to get, go do something. Engage the risk. Engage with it. Do something. Verse 5, the king says to me, what do you want? Well, first thing he does is he prays to God, and then he says, okay, king, talk to God first, then give your answer. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, then just let me, then, then let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are so that I can rebuild it. I want to go back and build that wall. It's not right. I know I might lose my job and I have to leave my cush position, all the good food I get to eat, 
king says, go, I'll help you. And he rallies the people together and, and he gets after it. Starts telling the other people, painting a vision for them. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? I see it now, I want you to see it. Look at Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about how God was with us. <laughs> This isn't my idea. This is what God wants. Friends, that's a leader. I see a need. I want you to see it too. God's in it. Who's with me? I see a need. I want you to see it too. God's in it. Who's with me? That's a leader. That's what Nehemiah does. And I love the response. Comes in verse 18. The people replied, I'm in. Let's start rebuilding. And they be, the Bible says, so they began this good work. Friends, it's good work when people come together and do what none of us can do, to, to do by ourselves. You can't change the world. I can't. But together at Mountain, we get to do some cool stuff. Look what we get to do. We get to make an impact that none of us could make as we each just take our stone and put it in the wall. Pretty soon, God builds up a whole wall. And that's what he did back then. It's what he wants to do now. Those were good days and good work. And there's nothing better in your life and mine than when you get to be involved in good days and good work like that. Well, you do what you can do, where you're called to do, and I do what I'm and we work side by side, and together God does something that only He can do. That's a story only God could tell, and it's epic. You know, you've heard me talk about my daughter, Ellie. Proud of her. Um, a couple of years ago, we were invited to participate in a mission trip down to Ecuador with Compassion International and Stadia Church Planning, two organizations we love and work closely with. And... Uh, wasn't, uh, we weren't there long before Ellie was telling me, Daddy, I, I want to sponsor a, a little girl all by myself. She was 12 at the time. And I didn't say, well, you're only a kid. Or where are you going to come up with the money? Or, well, just wait till you get back and see if you still care that much when you get home after you get busy and, you know, you get caught up in fashions and fads and all the things kids do. I didn't say any of that. I just said, okay. And she's latched on to that little girl and they've become fast friends like sisters. She's sponsored Evelyn. Here's a picture of when we got to go to Evelyn's house. That's me talking to his dad, her dad, who came in from his job farming just to meet us. And you see that little monkey in the back holding on to Ellie. That's Evelyn. And uh, since then we've gone back and as a church we've helped to plant a church in Ecuador through Compassion and Stadia. And uh, we sponsored kids in that very village. A couple hundred of them I think and we went back and visited again in 2013. And here's a picture there. You can see Ellie holding her little bud, Evelyn, that she prays for, and they trade letters, and she supports her. And then there's Mama. That's Anna holding little baby Nicholas right there. And when we were visiting, we could tell Nicholas felt warm to the touch, like he had a fever and a kind of a raspy cough. He was kind of lethargic. So we prayed for him and prayed that he would uh, be feeling better. And, and then a couple of months later, in 2013, Ellie got a letter from Evelyn explaining that her little baby brother, Nicholas, had died. And we sort of felt like Nehemiah, you know, when he heard about the walls. We just want to sit on and weep. And say, that's not right. That's a gap that somebody needs to do something about. I mean, I, I don't know for sure... But I'll bet you anything that it, the kind of antibiotics you and I can get by walking into a walk-in clinic might have turned that around for Nicholas. I don't know. There's a gap there. And you've got to let it break your heart a little. 
like it does God's. That's why I love Compassion International because they're rallying people like us who care to do something about things like that. They've recognized that that first 18 months, 24 months of a child's life are so crucial because the brain and the body is developing. And if they can get nutrients and basic health care and a little education and support to the family unit in those pivotal early years, well, then the kid has a shot of getting out of there and getting old enough. They can get sponsored and then they can get Jesus and then they can fulfill their life's calling and then they can make a dent in this old world and fulfill everything God's called them to do. But they never, none of that ever happens if we don't get out of the chute right at the beginning. So they have this thing called Child Survival Program and it's just inviting good people all over the, the globe to kind of partner with them to sort of make a difference in this child survival thing and, and it sends funds to these little villages. And last Christmas, we had a Christmas offering. We said we've got a few places we want to give and, and bless, but you know what? One of them is going to be a child survival program in that place where we planted this church. So what happened to Nicholas doesn't have to happen anymore, little kids. And so we just passed the hat and we said, we know it breaks God's heart. Would you let it break your heart? And mountain people reached in their pocket and they gave. And, I, and, and this weekend we've got a friend with us. Mark Palingra is here from Compassion International. He came all the way just to be with us. Will you welcome Mark Palingra as he comes here just for a minute? Mark. Thank you for coming. My Thank pleasure. you. You know, um, we just love Compassion International and what you guys stand for. You stand for Jesus and kids. And uh, we love that. It's close to the heart of God, close to our heart. You know, uh, you've helped us work with State to get that church planted. You've, you, know, you know, we sponsor these kids, shaved our heads and all that stuff. But then this Christmas offering. And, and uh, I just, we just want to thank you for what you're doing. And on behalf of the mountain people, um, uh, it's not going to fix everything, but it's our little stone in the wall. I want to present you a check uh, for $25,000 and tell you to go do something good for kids in Ecuador. Yeah, God bless. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Mountain family, this is, this is really incredible. And uh, what you've done so far is incredible. Um, I just want to thank you for your leadership, uh, for, for being willing to stand in the gap, for your generosity, um, for, for helping to shave your pastor's heads, your leadership's heads. Um, it is the first time that, that uh, on my team, uh, church relations team, we've ever prayed that every head would be shaved uh, for, this, for this campaign. But um, this, is, this is an incredible thing um, uh, with, that will ensure that um, children like Nicholas uh, will never, never have to struggle like that again. Uh, so uh, thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for standing in the gap. Um, God bless you. God bless you. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. So that's one example of how to embrace reality, engage the risk, and get after it. Let me just leave you with one last thought. If you do that, you need to expect opposition as well. Okay? Are we, are we just all clear here that nothing great you're ever going to attempt in life is going to be done for free? Okay, Jesus said, follow me. He picked up a cross and said, you get your own. You want to do something great for God in this old world. You want to do something that's going to fill a gap where there's a break in the wall. It's, it's, going, to, it's going to come with some cost. It's going to be difficult. And it's exactly the way it was for Nehemiah. If you just look through chapter 2 and 4, man, I'll tell you, these guys, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, all these guys, they rise up, they criticize him, they tell him he can't do it. Oh, you guys don't know how to build a wall. You're just stupid Jews. You don't know what's going on. And, and, and it just got worse and worse. Eventually, they threatened to kill him because they were threatened by them. And, and it just got worse and worse and worse. But Nehemiah he just rallied everybody and they talked to God about it, not them. And they just stayed with it. Let me ask you this question. 
What, what opposition or fear could hold you back? Do you know the answer to that? That maybe it's external, just like you've got some sandballs and Tobias criticizing you every time you try to do something good. Or people telling you, you, you know, you're no good or actively opposing. Or maybe it's external to you because it's like your schedule. You feel like it's just, you know, you're just busy filling out your days, but you're not really fulfilling your calling. Or maybe it's internal, you know, and it's because you feel inadequate or you, I don't have the money or I don't, you know, maybe I'll get around to it someday or, you know, they're, they're having NFL, um, NFL combine is this week, which is basically tryouts for pro football. And they're running these guys hard because they want to see, can they take some hits? Are these guys tough? Because in football, you hand someone the ball and you tell them there's a gap in the line, run through it. They're going to get hit and they want to know how you're going to hold up. Friends, if you dare say, I, I, here I am, Lord, send me. He's going to hand you the ball, and you're going to take some hits. But friends, you're going to be all right because it's God's stuff, and it's the way it, the story's going to be awesome, and you're going to have some bumps and scrapes, but you're going to know I'm, I'm doing the right thing, and I'm doing the God thing. Friend, don't you go to your grave with some vision that God planted there shriveled up inside of you. And that's what... Nehemiah encouraged those people to do and they kept at it and they, hang in, they hung in there with criticism and everything else. But chapter 6 verse 15 says they got it done and they got that sucker done in 52 days. Everybody working around the clock. They had a trowel and a sword and the other one, you know. But they got it done. And it comes down with God's help in chapter 6 verse 1 it says this. We finally realized we'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left. When all the gaps are filled, God's world is done. And until then, he wants us to step into the gap. So what is it for you? Last question, what is God saying to you today? What's he saying to you about the gap? About, about the need and your passion and your calling? Is it your family? Your home? Sponsoring a child? Adopting a child? Serving here in one of our ministries? getting engaged in your neighborhood, coaching, I don't know. But when we're ready to say, here I am, Lord. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an unclean person. I, I live among people, unclean lips. But God, if you'll have me, here I am, send me. Then I tell you, when we're ready to say that, he's ready to use you and put you in a gap and make your life a story only God could tell. Let's pray. God, we, we are so thankful for your calling in our lives. And we know that we are the change that the world is waiting for sometimes. So help us to fill in gaps and to go where you're calling us to go. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.